2: Entry 1283.JB2317 Certificate number 22400 Ted Danson in blackface
0: Hey, uh, Sammy, this guy over here uh, doesn't believe me about your bar slide. Uh, Would you mind serving one up just to save my good name? My pleasure, Glenn. Thank you, Sammy. Let's uh, clean this garbage out of
2: here. Clear the runway. Okay, Sammy,
1: Anytime time you're ready. There you go, <laughs> What do you think about Mr. Ted Danson? John, are you familiar with his oeuvre?
2: Well, I had the occasion to meet Ted Danson. Wow. This got interesting fast. I was at a party, which was a rap party. Without a W
1: or with a W? Uh,
2: it was not a rap party with an R. It was a rap party with a W. Was he wearing blackface? <laughs> he was not. It was a rap party for the television series Bored to Death, which was oh, written right. by Jonathan Ames, who's a man I know. Uh, but also, one of the characters on the show was played by John Hodgman. And so he invited me to the rap party, and Ted Danson was there. And for whatever reason, I was sitting at a table with a couple of people. And Ted Danson came and sat beside me and said... He can tell a fellow tall American man. Yeah. He said, what's your story? And I said, well, I'm not a man afraid to tell his story to Ted Danson. (laughs) And he and I got (laughs) into... very much your brand. (laughs) Does not shrink from a Danson encounter. We dove into a pretty long and involved conversation that I found extremely enjoyable. He was very attentive. You know, not a person that's looking over your shoulder or looking around the room he really gave me his full attention. Don't you find that
1: often with with famous or successful people that yeah. they
2: really do have that power, just to bowl you over with their charisma and put you in their laser gaze for a few minutes? One hundred percent. I don't. I couldn't tell whether he he was just like acting like he was interested, <laughs> right. but he was uh, asking really salient questions. And uh, there were a couple of pictures taken of the moment, and I was, you know, people were doing sort of candid snaps. And unfortunately, at that stage of my life, I was carrying a little extra weight and was wearing adult braces and had an unfortunate set of glasses on that are like, you know, I have quite a few pairs of personality glasses. I, I remember this era. Yeah. And Ted Danson looks like he's carved out of mahogany. Right? There's no fat on him. There's no... So... It's really unfair that he has that jawline and then the hair just turned white. Yeah. And he's... Obviously, like, tall and handsome. And so, although a picture of me just sitting alone from this time in my life, I wouldn't probably put it as the, like, front page uh, on a website for me. Like, I I look like an undercooked scallop that's wearing braces. <laughs> but sitting next to Ted Danson, who looks like a hickory stick, uh, the contrast couldn't be more telling. And so, although... Is it,
1: it, it on the front page of your website? not. You
2: and Ted Danson? Uh, so, it was... Like a great moment for me, and I came away really liking Ted Danson, but it's also colored by the fact that the only physical memory I have of it is this photograph that I hope no one ever sees.
1: You're kind of blurry in the picture, even though you're in perfect focus. I'm in perfect focus.
2: (laughs) It's just, I am personally like
1: a blur. Well, this is an odd turn because, you know, I'm a fan of Ted Danson's work. But I don't want to get into a, a scandal or controversy in his career of a friend of yours.
2: Oh, well, no, no. I don't think Ted Danson would remember me. Although if I went up to him I, and I said, remember that great conversation we had at the Board to Death Rap Party?
1: And what if he says no, and then you're like, one second, and you kind of put your head in your hands and you kind of fiddle around, and you come up with a crazy pair of glasses connected to a weird nose, connected to a weird mustache, connected to adult braces.
2: If I just went and got a scallop from the, from <laughs> ca- uh, you know, like cast services... <laughs> And said, hey, now do you recognize me? I am, we should
1: explain to the future that Ted Danson is kind of an odd niche in our culture. He's kind of a universally well-liked, seemingly always present, genial situation comedy figure.
2: He is surprisingly resilient. You would think that Ted Danson, having been a star on the enormously popular TV show Cheers, would have, like... Alan Alda kind of like gracefully retired from public view, but he continues to resurface and be beloved starring roles. He's on a lot of like popular. Yeah. He's had a series of successful
1: comedies following TV shows. Cheers. Yeah. Uh, and he still has the same kind of presence. The funny thing is on Cheers, he played a kind of a former ball player and a, a dimwitted bartender. Yeah. Like he was kind of. Bar owner. Yeah, the owner. Yes, he's the owner of Cheers. And he's kind of a dumb guy. Yeah, right. Uh, dumb but handsome. Right. He's kind of a, a good looking himbo type. Uh, to contrast, it's kind of a opposite, like a ben Beatrice and Benedict opposites attract kind of thing with this uh, erudite waitress, Diane, Diane Chambers. Right. And the bar's in Boston. I'm sure she could find any number of dumb lunks around.
2: Well, Diane Chambers is working there because she's secretly in love. With Ted Danson, that's the whole, that's what makes it twist. But she can't lower herself to his level, but she can't bear not to be around him. Cheers had
1: two actors, Ted Danson and Woody Harrelson, both playing dingbats. Well, and also the, the who guy was,
2: before, like coach, coach, the guy before Woody Harrelson was like the dumbest of the three.
1: But uh, the two of them, not Nicholas Colasanto, RIP Coach, who passed away after the first season. But mm-hmm. Woody Harrelson and Ted Danson have both gone to amazing careers. Not playing dumb guys. Right, they, they somehow got away from the the dumb guy stigma, and we barely remember that they were total blockheads.
2: Maybe, on cheers. maybe that's why. Because Alan Alda played a sort of self righteous liberal overtalker. On Mash, the and Korean that, War is bad, and that seems to be
1: remember, uh, he his is classic in, line. The Korean War is bad yes. from, from that classic M- Mash episode. The Korean
2: War is bad. Yeah, where the <laughs> where the camera like went, uh, sort of on a on a crane, like gradually went up as he's shaking his fist at the sky. The Korean War is
1: bad. It wasn't a chicken. The Korean War is bad. Yeah, I guess maybe c- because we got to know Woody and uh and Ted Danson as dumb guys, we're just always delighted and impressed that they're actually genial smart guys. Currently on on Ted Danson's series The Good Place, he plays uh, the opposite of that. He's kind of an all-knowing cosmic figure who is, you know, a perfectly dapper gentleman, you know, the opposite of this lunkish ex-Red Sox
2: guy. I don't think I would buy him as that, though, in the world. Like, Ted Danson is charismatic, and he's smarter than his character on Cheers, but knowing uh, as little about him as I do personally, my, my half an hour with him, I didn't walk away thinking, wow, this guy really knows. This guy's going to figure out the grand unified field theory. Yeah, he was just giving me, you know, he was turning his light on me for a while, but You know, when you sit and talk to Zach Galifianakis, you get a feeling like, wow, there are depths upon depths here. Maybe that's not accurate, but he gives that impression.
1: Ted Danson does have an everyman quality. He does. And that's what the American situation comedy demands, right? Mm -hmm. You want to feel like you're hanging out with these people. That's why they're all set in a a workplace, or, you know, Cheers is the classic case. It's a bar after work. These people are all literally hanging out, and what a joy that we get to hang out with them. The The sitcom was podcasting before there was podcasting, right? It's
2: so hard to go to an actual bar after work. Why not come home and sit in front of the television and watch other people <laughs> at a bar after work?
1: Put your little budget gourmet entree in the microwave and what? turn on Cheers. Yeah. Uh, he made movies. Have you ever seen a Ted Danson movie? Was he in Aliens?
2: <laughs> no.
1: Uh, I don't know. Name a... name. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Well, there is a sitcom star in Aliens, right? Oh, that's right. Mr. Uh, Paul Reiser, Paul Reiser. Is, uh, is the evil company guy. And Ted Danson could have played the oily company guy. Why not? I what? feel I'm angry now that Ted Danson is not an Aliens.
2: Well, guy. the th- problem with the oily company guy in Aliens is that it's kind of an anti-Semitic trope that he's playing. And Ted Danson is not Jewish. Well, that's what you want then. You
1: want to subvert it. It's, it's uh, problematic. Right. If Paul Reiser is a little bit too grasping or whatever. Sure. But let's, let's get a... that's what he a, is. <laughs> let's get a New England prep school guy like Ted Danson in there. What are some Ted Danson movies? Oh, man. I, I can't believe you're not a...
2: Are they all about baseball? What, or, or are they all set in a
1: bar? What would a Ted Danson fan even be called? A Danson Queen. We're the dancing queens.
2: Oh, where's the, where is my lack of bell? I am Tyler Durden's lack of bell. You're handicapped. You're <laughs> hamstrung today. <laughs> You're, I've
1: hidden your bell, John. This is like a, you know, this is a, the ticking clock of the supervillain. Your bell will die at midnight if you cannot f- solve these clues.
2: Yeah, we are in a, we're in a recording environment that has a lot more reverb than normal. Yeah,
1: we're, uh, we're in the, uh, we've moved from the bunker into a full cathedral.
2: As we walk around the town. Oh, wait a minute. Was he, oh, he was in three men and a baby, wasn't he?
1: He's not just one of the three men. He is the father of the baby. I think he's an architect
2: or something. Oh, wait, I didn't know that we, were you supposed to know who the father was? I thought the whole point of the three men was that none of them.
1: This is not Mamma Mia. I don't think it's, it's not a paternity test gimmick. If I remember right, you know in advance that he's the one whose whose ex has delivered the bundle on, of of joy on the doorstep. I, see, I he, see. Before his sitcom career, I think he's the he's kind of the the good looking other guy in uh, in Body Heat.
0: Oh, the okay. The William
1: the William Hurt. movie. if you need somebody else with a square head to stand up to William Hurt, um,
2: I'm trying to think of another movie here that he might have been in that I might have seen. Uh, a lot of TV shows. He's done a lot of TV.
1: The most relevant one is 1993's Made in America. Which, oh, no, 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 wait. He was in Saving Private Ryan. I saw that oh, just recently. He does, have yeah. a, he does have a cameo in Saving Private Ryan, which I'm actually against. Oh, really? Yeah, because suddenly it's, you know, Ted Danson.
2: Uh, right. I mean, yeah, if, if, right. You,
1: if you knew going in, Ted Danson is one of the guys. That's one thing.
2: Sure, but Tom Hanks. I mean, you can't. The whole movie. It's not like you believe. Oh, these are real guys in but, the world. But it's because like, it's
1: Tom Hanks from the beginning, you're like, I am on board with this movie being about a World War II guy who happens to look and sound a lot like Tom Hanks.
2: Who's Who's like the guy from Bosom Buddies.
1: But let's say suddenly it's not Tom Hanks. Suddenly they go into a canteen and Tom Hanks pops up. I would yeah. be like, Whoa! Hey, hey, hey! Yeah. Ted Danson is somebody's commanding officer. I think. They're, yeah, he's they're, a, they're using his height and his chin effectively. He's a captain of some kind. The the maybe the most relevant movie here is 1993's Made in America, hmm. which kind of does have the gimmick you thought Three Men and a Baby have. It's about a, uh, I think it's a young black girl who finds out that her dad is a white guy. The sperm donor actually was a white guy, and I think this is unbeknownst to her mom as well. And this is the movie on which Ted Danson met American comedian Whoopi Goldberg.
2: Oh, and they were in a long-term relationship, weren't N- they?
1: Not then. At the time, he was in a long-term marriage, which ended shortly after his very close friendship and then romance began with Whoopi Goldberg, with Karen Johnson, the comedian who became an 80s and 90s movie star oh. uh, under her stage name of Whoopi Goldberg. And this is in the early 90s when a celebrity interracial relationship like that was maybe not as common as it is now, maybe worth a little more headline ink. And this is a very interesting time in America's racial scene anyway. In March 1991, a Los Angeles motorist named Rodney King refuses to pull over after he's cited for, after he's caught speeding. He's afraid he's not going to pass a breathalyzer, and the whole thing turns into an awful beating, which is caught on film. And I don't know if this is so much true for someone a little older than me than you, but this was a real turning point in how I thought about race in America. It was a real wake-up call to people who thought that racists were buffoonish Southern sheriffs who had all been solved by Martin Luther King 30 years ago, and now things were on the whole pretty good.
2: Yeah, the the 80s were a period where I think there was a lot of understanding that the crack epidemic was viewed within the Black community as the product of an institutional attempt to destabilize African-American culture in the United States. And that was not the sense of it in the white community. So these were competing narratives of what was happening in black-white relations throughout that period. But there was a feeling that we were entering into an era where uh, the races were going to find a Pax Americana and work cooperatively. You know, best exemplified by all the Denzel Washington movies where Denzel's race is never referred to. He's just the you know, the star of the film.
1: We did it. It's a colorblind society. Just like that one Martin Luther King quote that white people like, and let's not remember any of the rest of his work.
2: And Chuck D was trying really hard to explain to us that that wasn't a universal perception. Yeah, it,
1: it turns out that you could either believe the Chuck D version, or you could believe the version from all these Rob Reiner movies about how racism had been fixed, often by really well-meaning white people. Right. <laughs> and things were pretty good now, actually. But,
2: but Rodney King and the subsequent riots uh, were a, a shock to everyone's system. And, and um, Do the Right Thing, the movie also, was an extremely popular movie and a real shock to the, white America. The
1: following year, a real... Yeah, and remember how white America was so worried that there were going to be riots in the theaters? Don't go to Do the Right Thing. What if there's an unruly urban crowd?
2: Well, this also happened, the movie Colors came out and there were apparently- New Jack City, I yeah. think, same thing. So it was a period where uh, there was a heightened a newly newly like, heightened paranoia and anxiety within uh, white America that I think thought that the 80s were a period of healing and a period of- Sure, uh, the
1: hippies had all grown up and they were now- Comfortable suburban moms and dads.
2: Bill Clinton often referred to as America's first black president <laughs> because he was very popular in African-American like circles.
1: You know, the LA riots that resulted in April 1992 from the acquittal of these four officers on most or all of the charges by, I believe, an all-white jury or at least an all-non-black jury. Mm. Maybe they were all white. Um, really did fuel a lot of, you know, it's what led to the ending of Do the Right Thing it's, we didn't know it yet, but it's what led to OJ getting away with it. <laughs> I mean, it really did change the shape of how we thought about race and law enforcement in America. And the same month as the LA riots, the Rodney King cop verdict in the LA riots, is uh, it's, it's a bummer that we always say the Rodney King verdict. It's not his verdict. It's the four <laughs> cops, Stacey Kuhn and whoever the other three cracker cops were. Um, the very same month, Ted Danson and Whoopi Goldberg make Made in America... Not a movie classic, but it's the thing that starts their romance. And <clears throat> the following year, in October 1993, when they're still a couple, Whoopi Goldberg is chosen to be the honoree, would you say? The target at a Friars Club roast.
2: Oh, wow. Now, these this is before the Friars Club roasts were widely uh, broadcast on Comedy Central, right? They were still a kind of right. exclusive event, that happened outside of the public eye.
1: The Friars Club is a private club in New York that kind of started as a Broadway slash vaudeville entertainment scene place for entertainers to hang out. And it quickly became dominated by the comedy side of the vaudeville scene. They would do tributes for their big names. But uh, around the 50s or 60s, they started to do a kind of event called a roast, which was this weird kind of comedy kabuki pageant whereby... Uh, everybody's peers would get up and just say awful things about Jack Benny or Sid Caesar or Milton Berle or Groucho Marx or whoever
2: it was. And gradually that extended to awful things about every other comedian sitting on the dais (laughs) so that it, you know, the roast just becomes like an example of like the most awful humor you can
1: In the 60s and 70s, these were televised on the Dean Martin show and maybe somewhere else, and probably a little bit sanitized for that audience. It was more of a kind of a Groucho Marx eyebrow waggle vibe. Yeah. Um, In the early 2000s, when Comedy Central started to show them, um, it turned into a weirder thing still, where it would be usually a non-comedian. It would be... um,
2: Hugh Hefner got a roast. Yeah, it would uh, be a
1: pop culture type who was already kind of a punchline. It would be a, a... Justin Bieber right, or Donald Trump even got a roast and some comedians would get up and do a series of just awful over the top insults. And uh, on the comedy, in the Comedy Central era, non-comedians as well. For some reason, suddenly it would be Martha Stewart getting up and somebody had written her a series of jokes about Justin Bieber or- Usually they had an association with the person being roasted. But sometimes it was just Shaq. Yeah, suddenly right. here's Jewel. Like why? why
2: is Jewel roasting you know, Chris Rock, I don't know. The Comedy Central roast of Hugh Hefner was my introduction to Sarah Silverman, who was still a young comedian at the time and I I had no awareness of her. I guess she'd been on Mr. Show as kind of a bit player. But uh, she was so ruthlessly funny on that roast of Hugh Hefner that I was an immediate fan and like sought out everything she'd ever done.
1: Even though these Comedy Central roasts were televised, they did kind of have this insider, clubby feeling of comedians just saying the, the worst thing they could think of about right. each other, which really plays to. Gilbert Gottfried
2: famously uh, really pushed the boundaries.
1: He did, yeah. The 9-11 joke was at a uh, was at a, a Comedy Central roast, I believe. Yeah, and it turned out it was a little too soon, too far. Yeah, um, but really, the whole pre- these these roasts are kind of a big conceptual joke where the idea is, this is normally a thing where somebody would be honored, but we're just going to say the most over-the-top worst things we can... And you can't even believe we're saying them straight-facedly, just these gratuitously sexual insults, the most distasteful thing you can think of. it's It's the aristocrats kind of thing, where the whole joke is... I really can't believe they're doing this. Why does this exist?
2: Well, but uh, but what made it a roast was that those jokes often were based in something real, some real character yeah. of the of the person being roasted. So they weren't just dirty jokes flown in from out of state. They they often pointed up real foibles in the the roastee.
1: Sometimes they were, but you're right. Like the the vibe, the gist was always like Milton Berle steals jokes, or like you know right. they would really go through somebody's resume and talk about all the unsuccessful movies they made or all the terrible things that Trump had done. And it's a really funny kabuki thing because the person will be on the dais just kind of laughing along as every uh, awful thing in their resume is just brought to light.
2: And then each comedian goes, actually, you know, really love you, man. You're the best. (laughs) You've been great for my career. Big hug. It's all in terrible taste, but it seems almost
1: beside the point to even mention that. Which I, I remember thinking that when I went to see Book of Mormon on Broadway, you know, people would be like, oh, you're Mormon. What did you think? And I would say, well, it's in terrible taste, but it's supposed to be in terrible taste. Why would you even point that out? This, sure. This, this is a two and a half hour play with like 60 AIDS jokes. Sure. I mean. <laughs> Blame Canada. <laughs> like what, the fact that it's tasteless, We, we you know, you, it's true, but um, the point of it is not your reaction to it.
3: Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout.
1: Uh, so it's you know, so this is an environment where shocking distasteful material is ubiquitous, is expected. You know, it's only odd now when somebody doesn't do it. Did you ever see the James Franco roast where Andy Samberg just says nice things about him? No. (laughs) It's the only time anybody ever sees one of these routines of somebody actually doing anti-jokes like uh, Andy Samberg says, Oz the Great and Powerful, more like an amazing movie that transported me to a fantasy wonderland. And then there's a long pause and people realize there's no insult like that to the joke. Norm Macdonald did it to Bob Saget too. But those are the exceptions. Like really, it's all just comedians kind of elbowing each other in the ribs and saying awful things about each other. Milton Burrell said, it's just a way to say we love each other. Right. Because comedians are broken. People. They are deeply, deeply <laughs> broken. <laughs> so on this particular night in uh, October 1993, it's not actually at the Friars Club Monastery because it's for a huge crowd. You, Whoopi Goldberg... Uh, You know, she runs these comic relief benefits with Billy Crystal and Robin Williams. She's one of the biggest stars in the world. She's won an Academy Award. She has an Oscar for Ghost. She's on the Starship Enterprise dispensing advice even to Captain Picard. Oh, I forgot about that. She's got a weird satellite dish of a hat, so that enables her. She's like a, nobody's ever talked about this, but it kind of of feeds into the kind of the mystic black person thing Mm -hmm. that you saw in a lot of movies at this
2: time. Well, and it did, the hat very much looked like a sort of African style of clothing. It's a purple
1: church lady hat, but like with a, with a twisted kilt like yeah. it's a it's a sci-fi take on it
2: but she was an enormous star and kind of ubiquitous in the culture like you say she was not just starring in movies and TV but also doing benefit concerts she appeared everywhere
1: yeah and her stand up was a lot of her material was about what it was like growing up as a disadvantaged black kid so there was kind of a social conscience aspect to her work she was associated with the characters she played in the color purple who had the same kind of rough upbringing And so 3,000 people fill up the New York Hilton to see this roast of Whoopi Goldberg. And I believe the very first uh, speaker, the the person who kind of kicks it off and comes out as the MC is her current boyfriend, although I think they're kind of being coy in the paper still, Mr. Ted Danson, who has just wrapped Cheers, one of the best-liked, affable, white bread guys in America that no one ever has a bad thing to say about. Right. Big star also. Huge star. Everyone's wondering what his next act is after Cheers. He's starting to do movies. And uh, in this environment where kind of shock, edgy shock humor is rewarded, Ted and Whoopi cook up this idea and he walks onto the stage with dark brown face paint and a big white circle around his lips in the tradition of blackface. Blackface is kind of an awful racial caricature that goes back centuries. It's um, The American tradition was kind of cemented by a, a character named Daddy Rice, Thomas Dartmouth Rice, hmm. who created this beloved stage character named Jim Crow, a caricature so racist that a whole racist era got named after him. Is that where Jim Crow came from? Yeah, it's named for this guy who would get up on stage and kind of shamble and do the slow speech and the just all these kind of awful tropes that the caricature... Uh, african-american culture and you know at this time this is like the mid-19th century slave culture right and this kind of the minstrel show was the most popular entertainment form of the 19th century it was mass entertainment it's what begat vaudeville it kind of had these two man, these two man uh two hand sketches by these two characters called end men which were then bracketed by a, a single monologue by a different performer so they created both sketch comedy and stand up comedy. Like so much of our entertainment comes through minstrel shows, which were deeply racist. Performers would just burn corks and like rub black stuff on their skins and leave these exaggerated circles around their mouths and then do awful, awful caricatures of African American speech and behavior and music and dance.
2: So there's a, a long tradition in theater where actors are representing, at, at first in Greek theater and In the Middle Ages, women weren't allowed to perform on stage. All those roles were played by men. And, uh, of course, Othello is a a moor, always probably played by a a white actor. Until the 20th century. uh, In blackface. And during this period in the mid-19th century, it would have been impossible for a black actor to appear on stage in any capacity, playing an African-American of any type. So this would have been in the spirit of the theater Western theater where right. white actors played every role.
1: And kind of the, you know, it shows though even in this century, the white appetite for um, African-American culture. Like we want to see what this music and this dance is like. Although I think according to a lot of scholarship about minstrel shows, the music and the dance and the vernacular and the stories and the customs and the skits were not terribly authentic. Like a lot of them were just dreamed up by the white performers straight from their own Appalachian sure. folk or country tradition and really, you know, these people were not super troubled by whether or not these were actual folk songs that a real black audience would have recognized.
2: But this would have been the a period where the threat of black equality or integration would have been a real bugaboo for whites nationwide, in the North as well as the South. And the
1: stereotypes you see in the minstrel shows are kind of comforting to a white audience. You know, blacks are painted as...
2: Slow and
1: Cowardly, helpful. lazy, yeah. you know, subservient. Obviously, you know, nothing to worry about. They're not going to make trouble. They're just kind of silly comic figures. So there's this real loaded history to doing something as simple as putting dark pigment on your face and a circle around your mouth, yeah. which obviously Ted and Whoopi were aware
2: of. You see that a lot in, uh, in comedies in the, in the 1980s, uh, the Asian character. Is always like a bumbling goofball, somebody that's that is sort of hyper formal or or struggling to understand how to use a fork or he, whatnot. He's
1: often emasculated, yeah. like he's always hitting on Molly Ringwald or the other white girls. But um, he's a figure of fun because, of course, no one's ever going to date an Asian.
2: And at that point in the nineteen eighties, I mean, all of our all of our anxiety about the decline and fall of American <laughs> manufacturing—it was all. The, the threat of, uh, of the Japanese and Asian sort of ascendant.
1: I wonder if that's true, how much stereotyping really does come out of like your fear of replacement.
2: Because if you think about the stereotyping of Chinese in the early part of the 20th century and late 19th century as they came, emigrated to America in large numbers and were building the railroads.
1: Industrious, starting their own businesses. Yeah,
2: that they were presented as pretty, I mean, you know, the coolie, stereotype with the long braid and the.
1: And of course to us watching 16 Candles, we were just like, ha ha ha, look at this yeah, silly immigrant long figure. Dong. It not, long duck dong did not affect us, but you know, to my Asian American friends, they were literally getting beaten up on the playground and called long duck dong for years. Yeah. It's the argument in Hari Kondabolu's Apu documentary, which I think, you know, Simpsons fans have pilloried him for, but it's, that's his authentic childhood. He had to deal with Apu jokes for decades And he's rightfully pissed about
2: that. And he's made a big point in his comedy to not caricature his own parents, even as he tells jokes about his upbringing. And his parents do speak in an Indian-American, you know, pretty strong accent, but he refuses to. He will not do the accent. He won't do the accent, even though he knows that it would be comedy, you know, it would make him more of a mainstream comedy. I
1: think all these Desi actors have, you know, we have to decide, am I going to do the funny voice to be the cab driver or am I going to tell my agent I'm not going to do it and probably work a fraction as much.
2: Well, and so when when black actors did start to appear in on American stages and in films...
1: They would even do minstrel shows. They yeah. would put on the burnt cork on their actual brown faces. Um, they would dress up and after the Civil War, it was not unusual to have troops of actual black actors doing minstrel shows in the same kind of upsetting outlandish minstrelsy I've talked to, you know, speaking of Hari, you know, he's from here in Seattle. Hari is a Seattle of,
2: comedian, yeah.
1: And I've talked to him at length about, you know, some of his social concerns and how they overlap with comedy. And, uh, you know, this idea now that we, we really should think about our jokes and think about what the side effects are is kind of new. And is, is, is really something that riles a lot of comedians up who really feel like a laugh is a very instinctive thing. And you don't want to mess with it by questioning too much or asking, you know, why that joke works or doesn't work hey, if the audience has laughed, the audience has spoken.
2: Well, and the entire idea, the contemporary idea that you don't punch down, you punch up. And, you know, comedians of certain stripes and certain demographics, right, they, they feel like that's too difficult to, a line to draw. What's up, of, what's yeah, down. A
1: lot of tribalism has grown up around this idea that, uh, man, I can't believe they're even policing our jokes now. So really, you know, which side of that divide you're on doesn't really hinge on any specific... Joke or comedian or social view or or theory of comedy—it really is just like, am I the kind of person whose cable network tells me to be mad about racism, or the kind of person whose cable network tells me to be mad about the PC thugs coming for the comedians? It's really a—I told somebody I had a guy over here yesterday, um, doing a TV thing, and he saw my book about comedy and was like, in my opinion, comedy's gotten a lot worse. And I was like, yeah, yeah you know, you're a middle-aged guy, you know, tell me about how you loved Steve Martin or Eddie Murphy or whoever your guys were. And he was like, they just can't say what they think anymore. There's too much, you know. And and yeah. and he had a whole theory. PC culture. He had a whole thing about PC culture, and uh, you know, this is this uh, this 1993 roast is a real flashpoint for that. You know, it's kind of a real early test case. It's maybe the first. Is it the beginning of cancel culture? Um, what is cancel culture? Just this idea that, uh, I mean, it depends on how you use it. The idea that certain popular names either past or present could do something so awful that we just have oh, to decide they cancel their they're, show they're, and yeah or you know and they're metaphorically canceled like right. in our hearts we have canceled them I see. you know it could be somebody like Roseanne who's literally canceled it could be somebody like Bill Cosby whose legacy is canceled it could just be some talking head who said
2: something dumb said
1: all lives matter on Twitter at the wrong time not realizing that was a tribalist thing and Suddenly, we all have to talk about how they're problematic now.
2: Right, and they and there are a lot of occasions where someone is temporarily canceled, or I mean, you're not, you're right. not allowed to. What well, the world still waits in the wings to see what Louis C.K. I mean, he <laughs> still could walk out and say the whole thing was a was like a prank.
1: In most cases, cancel culture is, I think, <clears throat> some kind of a um, a mirage. You know, yeah. like like I remember Hari saying to me like, people are worried about the thought police. There's really no um, jurisdiction that actually has a thought police. I mean, people might tell you they didn't like your joke, but for the most part, like, the real-world consequences are few and far between.
2: Like, R- Roseanne could come up with a script where she appears self-reflective and get that TV show made. Right. Yeah. So Ted
1: Danson thinks this will be a funny entrance to come out in... Blackface. In
2: blackface. Because he's in, and this is something that happens among liberal whites or woke whites the tendency to think that you've established your bona fides. I am
1: down. You're, you're down. Ted Danson. Right. I in, am having sex with Whoopi Goldberg.
2: You're clearly an ally. And so therefore, you're insulated against criticism. And you see this also with straight white people who are friends with a lot of queer white people, where all of a sudden they feel like they are entitled to use a lot of terminology because they're, because they're down.
1: Yeah. I mean, and, and sometimes I go so far as, you know, my black friends say I can use the N-word and they think, they think it's cool. Sure. Um, Ted Danson apparently thinks he's one of those people. Like in, a, in his monologue, he uses the N-word no fewer than a dozen times.
2: And in 1993, when we're, we're still, some people still probably thinking that we're in a post-racial environment And also this is the rise of gangster rap right at the same exact moment where the N-word is – the the N-word where it would have prior been almost extirpated, right, not used in common parlance, now was being reintroduced into American culture in the form of this enormously popular style of – very combative music,
1: and that's the birth of well, they get to say it ism, right, 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 right. Right. <laughs> which we, which you know, didn't exist for twenty years, but now it sure does. So affable, likable Ted Danson proceeds to do a series of just awful comedy roast style jokes about largely sexualized about his relationship with Woody, and extremely explicit kind of um, imaginings of
2: them together in bed.
1: Of them together and kind of the racial overtones of a white guy with a black woman, extreme anatomical detail.
2: And do these feel like jokes he and she wrote together or that they had someone write for them?
1: Yeah, it comes out later. And it's, it's kind of clear at the time that, you know, there's no reason Sam Malone from Cheers would be making this joke. He and Whoopi thought it would be funny to do this over-the-top, awful, racist stuff. And she's obviously writing a lot of it. Um, And
2: she's sitting on stage uh, as the roastee, just sort of twisting. She's
1: whooping it up. But not everyone in the audience is so into it. There's a lot of prominent African-Americans there. Um, David Dinkins, the first black mayor of New York, is there. To him, Ted Denson starts his routine by saying, someone pulled me aside and said, Ted, remember, the mayor is coming. Don't do any political stuff. Just do, and then he says the N-word, jokes. (laughs) <laughs> With Dinkins sitting right there <laughs> on the stand, and other and other prominent uh, African American celebrities, Montel Williams is there, Mr. T is there, uh, Vanessa Williams is there, Beverly Johnson. You know, you know a lot of uh, you know fans of Whoopies and and her peers. And it becomes clear pretty soon that Danson is losing this audience. Right, he thought it would be funny to come on stage in blackface. Never really occurred to him he was going to have to do this whole ten minutes. With the blackface still on, and what the effect of that would be right
2: and this is a this is a perfect storm of uh of an era of increased African American consciousness within their own world right they need that. dinkins can't be seen laughing you know he's conscious of his own presence in the room and his own constituency, and also it's a moment where Danson's just on the wrong side of a pretty razor's edge of where this, where this, I mean, a, a year before, a year later, he wouldn't have done it. A year before, maybe it would have played to the room in a different way, right?
1: Yeah, he kind of annihilates the razor's edge. Like if there's a line, he just kind of tramps right through it. There's a long routine about how he brings Whoopi home to meet his parents and a series of incredibly racist things happens. His dad makes her wear a maid's uniform, you know, offers to drive her to the bus. You know, they make her clean the house. Hmm. So, you know, at least there's maybe some level of social satire going on there, you can say. But then he just goes on this very awful detailed thing about his parents catching them having sex and what they're doing in great detail. Like he just goes, so the mayor of New York is on the stand. Imagine Ted Dance and America's Sweetheart in blackface saying, so instead I took her out to the deck and out of her. You know, the she's famous for and like a werewolf too. I mean, her screams could open a garage door. It was incredible. Then once the neighbors were standing there, Whoopi looked around and she was pissed. She said it was like they never heard a black chick before. And that just got her worked up. And she bellowed, yes, yes, Lily White, good. Exactly at that minute, I heard my mother crack open the door. We just sort of froze, but I tried to a little bit to... And my mother said, no, not with Ted. The neighbors are getting worried about the future. And then she goes into some awful things that would happen if they had multiracial kids Uh that are just like third grade playground jokes. This is like not good stuff. But Whoopi and I just started to laugh and laugh. And I said, ma, relax. I'm in the. (laughs) So, and then a waiter brings out a tray of watermelon, which he eats and looks over at Whoopi and says, I do believe I remember you saying, I dare you. So obviously these two are in their little...
2: Right. Love
1: struck world right. thinking, wouldn't they're, it be funny if they're
2: having a hilarious time. They're
1: just one-upping each other. And meanwhile, you know, Mayor Dinkins is shaking his head. Right. Montel Williams gets up and walks out. I guess his wife is crying. They've got multiracial kids. He doesn't think these playground jokes about multiracial kids are funny. So they walk out. Right.
2: And a room full of comedians and VIPs reads the room better than Ted. I think
1: he knows he's getting nervous. There's a point in the routine where he's talking about his dad looking at photos, nude photos of Vanessa Williams, the the disgraced sure. Miss America. Right. You know, a scandal from uh, the mid '80s that kind of had was the f- some first, racial overtones. The
2: first black Miss America, who then it was discovered had posed nude and in
1: the past, and when somebody else put those photos out, right, she was stripped of her title in a way that perhaps a white Miss America would not have been. We don't know. Um, but anyway, Ted Danson, in telling this joke about Vanessa Williams' photos, accidentally says Vanessa Redgrave. <laughs> so, <laughs> So the joke makes no sense whatsoever. He's maybe a little rattled, right? Um, Montel Williams later says he's going to buy roses for every black woman who was there because he feels so bad for them, and says it was like being at a meeting of the Klan. Oh, Dinkins later told the papers. Because this became a thing, that he was embarrassed for Whoopi having to sit through it and the audience and felt a tremendous sense of relief when it was over. Think about this poor guy being a hostage to this 19th century minstrel routine that for some reason has broken out at the New York Hilton. (laughs) So it becomes a media circus, as you can imagine. One of the biggest stars in America doing something terribly transgressive.
2: And not clear exactly as particularly like jokes taken out of context, let's say. Um, not clear that Whoopi was in on it or that she was playing along, but seemed very much like Ted just didn't know what was funny and what wasn't and had done this on of his own accord and had really stepped in it.
1: Yeah, because he kind of had, there's really no attempt to kind of, I mean, except for the one part about.
2: Um, you dared me to.
1: Yeah. And except for the part about her parents, his parents um, mistaking her for the maid or whatever, there's no level of social satire or whatever. It really is just like this certain sex act is very funny with people of another race and here's a weird anatomical reason why that really Mayor Dinkins probably did not care to hear. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's really just straight up roast material. There's, there's not a lot of subtlety to it right. on any level.
0: Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Yousician, Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start.
1: And in the following days, it does become a firestorm. Like, maybe not as much as it would be today. Like, today you can't even imagine. Well, this Somebody
2: was this. this was at a time when showing up as a white guy at a frat party or a corporate getaway in blackface was still socially acceptable, or at least social. It was transgressive, but not so transgressive that you would be like universally pilloried. Yeah, not, not so
1: transgressive that they would leave it out of the yearbook. Right. You know, as we as we know in our time, it's become a gotcha for many politicians, a skeleton in their closet. That they have later in, in their college the,
2: yearbook or high school yearbook. Right, it recently
1: white. happened that both the the both the governor of Virginia and the attorney general, yeah. who, who who might replace him in the case of a, a scandal that took out the lieutenant governor as well, they both had pictures of them in in blackface, right? At a you know at a hip hop themed college party, and today you know my sixth grader would know not to touch that with a ten foot pole, right? But. In the '80s, law students were just showing up in blackface,
2: saying what? What? Sure, racist character, racist caricatures were still a pretty big part of the entertainment world.
1: It you know it just shows how those lines kind of get drawn arbitrarily. I know those caricatures were just as harmful and awful then, but for some reason, nobody had said, "Hey, you know, let's take a look at this." As long as Jay Leno is making jokes about Monica Lewinsky or Bill Cosby or whatever, we just laugh. A- Michael Jackson, right? decades of jokes about Michael Jackson being a child molester. And until we stop and think and have to watch the HBO documentary, we're like, yeah, it's funny because he's a child molester. Right.
2: But also in this period, a lot of jokes about Michael Jackson's appearance and his gradual like whitewashing of himself.
1: Ted Danson tells a Michael Jackson joke in this routine that you know the only thing that could take the media <laughs> uh, spotlight off of him and Whoopi is if Burt Reynolds and Michael Jackson were caught having sex. I don't understand the joke, but,
2: you know. There it is. I'm sure it was very topical. (laughs) Burt Reynolds, a paragon of Southern white (laughs) virtue.
1: So, in the following days, Ted Danson actually does not apologize. Whoopi Goldberg says that she thought he did great, and it was all very funny, and that if you're a comedian, if you're in on the joke, you would certainly not be offended. At first, the Friars Club apologizes, and then they must have members- To the world. To the world, yeah, public apology.
2: Right, right. And uh, to the audience. and But this wasn't a routine that was available for the public to see, right? right? This is an era when reporters had to be the interlocutor.
1: I think a lot of it came from Roger Ebert, who was in the room and wrote a long column uh, that was not a movie review, but was really like, Ted Danson, what are you doing? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Enough with the watermelon Ted Danson. So the news gets out very quickly and uh, the Friars Club apologizes and then backs off. Apparently, I'm sure some of its members were like, you know, with that comedy gold standard that we don't apologize for a jokes. Jokes are supposed to be edgy and offensive. That's a feature, not a bug. Right. And so they walk back the apology and say, you know, given that it was for a private audience, you know, who understands how roasts are supposed to work, actually we stand by this. Danson has never talked much about it publicly, but he and Whoopi broke up shortly thereafter. Possibly this is a contributing factor. And I think within a year or two, he's married to uh, Mary Steenburgen. Oh, sure. With whom I think it's, what, it's been over 20 years, and there's still a beloved Hollywood fairy tale
2: marriage. Well, you know, Roger Ebert married an African-American woman. Yes, this is not academic for him. Right.
1: And you can see that in a lot of his, isn't there, there's a story about uh, he dated Oprah, remember? Yeah, that's there's, right. <laughs> Roger Ebert and Oprah went out on, on a date once upon a time. So- it's a, one of the strangest things in American history that this beloved sitcom guy did the worst comedy routine you can think of, and then we kind of forgot. Like
2: he uh, he walked away more or less unscathed. And it and how how did it happen? Was it just that at that point in time you couldn't be canceled in the same way? Somebody of Ted Danson's level of success, and he maintained his good dude. Status.
1: It was probably a sign that it was not seen as such a
2: deal killer then. You know,
1: we obviously agree these jokes were misjudged, but
2: but Whoopi took some responsibility. Yeah,
1: and maybe that helped. You know, maybe there really was some. You know, the insider status is what helped him skate. But it may just be the fact that uh, no cancellation is permanent. You know that the culture does move on. Even back then, when news cycles were longer. You know, this was this was the biggest story in America. I don't know if you remember this. Yeah, this was the I biggest do. story in America for a couple of weeks yeah. because what the heck was he thinking? But then the eye moved on. But it is very relevant to our modern moment, not just because we're still seeing politicians <laughs> maybe resign because of blackface scandals, but just because it's a conversation we're still having about how do we judge jokes? You know, I think um, in general, on the comedy side, the point of view is a joke's a joke you don't question it like to say this is just a joke is a get out of jail card and you know the laughter should be automatic but jokes do have external effects as we've seen now there's there's some interesting research on this when i wrote this book about comedy you know if you tell kind of discriminatory jokes to a group of people and then you have them do some exercise based on that same axis you know divide up a college budget amongst different clubs for example or you know decide how these different government agencies might get funded the group that's been told a series of defamatory jokes about women gays minorities whatever the group is will actually they will say that they are not conscious of any bias but they disagree with the jokes and the premises of the jokes but they will divide up the budget differently yeah like the, you know hearing defamatory stuff about a group has Subconscious effects on us we're not always aware of
2: well, and this is the argument again or the argument in favor of policing content on social media uh, that Twitter and Facebook have an obligation to take down white supremacist sites, for instance or um or sites that advocate violence against the government or other or groups of people, right because just exposure to it does affect bias, unconscious bias or or conscious
1: bias. And comedy comes into that because it's a very valuable tool in putting over a point of view that somebody wouldn't be open to unless it was kind of presented ironically. You know, if Adolf Hitler is telling you about, you know, the value of the skinhead ethos and the threat of white genocide, you're not going to believe it. But if Pepe the Frog is, in kind of a silly winking way, maybe you become open to those ideas because they're being presented in a fun, edgy, pseudo-ironic fashion. And you let
2: it in the door. All of this is happening in a context that we've talked about before, like postmodernism and post postmodernism, where the idea that language has power intrinsically, how you frame things, how the words you use, and the people who are using those words um, have systems of power encoded in it, and words are not just neutral or benign. And I think that that worldview now sort of permeates how we're how our culture is self constructing and self uh interrogating, and whether or not fifty years from now that will be the way comedy looks at itself or the way we look at comedy it's it's uh it's hard to know
1: but i mean obviously Ted Danson would not have felt like a white supremacist in that moment no he's the you know the good liberal who's convinced of his good intentions and is therefore squeaky clean right um and this is really a time when our view of racism was starting to change from uh, you know racism is a thing that malicious people do to you know what if these discriminatory outcomes are so systemic that even if you don't feel like a bad person you could be perpetuating these bad attitudes just by virtue of you know stuff that's built in it's it's a bunch of people acting rationally and normally normally to them and yet you know, there's a discriminatory
2: outcome. It's also context. I mean, I think about Ted Danson doing that routine at the Playboy Club in 1962, where his audience is Sidney Poitier and even Bill Cosby. Harry Belafonte. Harry Belafonte. And I don't think that routine would have gone over very well there. But Don Rickles made an entire career out of standing on stage and insulting every single race, color, and creed. And somehow got away with it because at the end of the show he said, "I'm just kidding. I love everybody." Uh, but in Vegas, that he was still pulling that off until until 2016.
1: You know, there's also an interesting wrinkle in Whoopi Goldberg claiming that the whole routine was her idea. You know, because you know she has not always since then. She's not always been the person who's been on the forefront of the most woke, the most progressive viewpoint. You know, uh, I have a bunch of DVDs of kind of old cartoons with awful racist things in them. You know, uh, Tom and Jerry getting attacked by a kind of a mammy caricature or-
2: Felix the the cat.
1: Yeah. Or there's an explosion and suddenly, you know, Mickey or Bugs or whoever it is has Al Jolson blackface on. You know, these these little cartoons were full of racist stuff that was just kind of comedy lingua franca then that has not aged well now. And these things will inevitably have Whoopi Goldberg in the front of them saying- Hey just because these old-timey racial caricatures were there doesn't mean we shouldn't watch them. In fact, it would be whitewashing the past if we didn't, you know, if we pretended these things didn't exist or if we censored these cartoons.
2: Well, you know, that idea, the idea in the 80s that we were moving into a post-racial society was not just a like a white culture fantasy. That generation of black middle class uh, you know, yuppie, baby boomer, black middle class also aspired to that and, and wanted to promote it and believed that it was possible.
1: It was working for them. And, and it's unanimous. White people would watch the Huxtables and think like, yeah, this is great. Like, look, look, we figured it out.
2: So as, you know, as Oprah became the richest woman in the world, I mean, this was supposed to usher in a new era of opportunity for the black middle class. And so they were all devastated to find that, I mean, they were prepared to put that police brutality stuff... Uh, Behind them as well, and then all of a sudden it was shoved back in everybody's faces, and it was a somewhat of a litmus test, like Whoopi, are you gonna, which side of this divide are you gonna be on? And you don't want to. She doesn't want to be an
1: Ofe. To this day, she's very much of that generation. You'll see her on the View, you know, defending Bill Cosby for a long time, for example. You know, just because she's not on the forefront of the, you know, of the right opinion on these things, right?
2: And the, 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 you know, the right current opinion and, right. and, uh, and who knows what, uh, whether we turn a corner and are, and are striving for a post-racial society again and, and on what terms. And I guess that, yes, we always are going to strive for that. It's the terms of engagement that keep needing to be reevaluated.
1: Yeah. You know, if nothing else, I mean, I don't think this is justifies Ted Danson, but you know, I, I think having these conversations is really interesting. And you know it, it's good to kind of articulate you know why we should not have a white sitcom star doing blackface, or to what degree it's you know the the irony and the history of it is acceptable or or isn't. I mean, you know to have something to say in response to a joke you don't like and to start a conversation about it does not have to be a slight to the comedian or a slap in the face.
2: I mean, that's the trick, right? Hurry Kundabolu, and he said to me many. Times that the pronunciation of his first name is a struggle for him because white people call him Hari, yeah. and the actual pronunciation he sat and said Hari. It's a schwa, Hari. And I'm like ha ha ha. but he's not trying to create a a, a world in which uh, the white middle class is excluded. He's trying to expand the the opportunity for a larger group and create a safer environment for a larger group of people. And
1: to talk about the implication of a joke is not to you know, rebut or negate the joke or shame the joke in any way. You know, It's like the, the Emerson thing, let me never fall into the vulgar mistake of dreaming that I am persecuted whenever I am contradicted. Right.
2: I mean, I went through, throughout the 90s, I worked in a gay bar. I had a lot of, I lived on Capitol Hill in a community where being queer was the norm. And I, for a period, I think, and maybe until now, identify as a queer adjacent person, right? I have a lot of predilections that aren't just sort of Christian dad at a Hooters. But I thought for a period there in the transition between the 90s and the 2000s, that that entitled me to use a lot of language that I felt was inclusive within our special world. Um, Because there was a lot of argument in the early nineties to take back that language. And that was why the N word became popular again. Why, why. Even
1: the word queer, which you just used. Queer. You know, that was a slur when I was a kid. Sure.
2: It, it absolutely was. And taking back that word, taking back uh, the word that is synonymous with the, the British cigarette, you know, there are all these words. And I really did feel like I was entitled to use those words because within my community, it was a lingua franca. And like a lot of people my age, resisted being told by outsiders that I was not entitled to use that word. People that didn't know me, didn't know where I was from, what I'd been through, you know, that some 22-year-old was going to stand there and tell me that that word wasn't mine to use. And it took me a long time to, not a long time. I mean, clearly. (laughs) Last Wednesday for the last time. (laughs) After a while and after some close (laughs) consultations with people I knew. I mean, but even Dan Savage who I think, you know, was a hero of the gay rights movement and of our time. Um, he had, he's had to stop responding to his letters. Yeah. Dear the, the, the gay F word. Right. Right. Well, ultimately as two white guys doing a podcast where we talk about the past in order to enlighten the future, We are we are probably the wrong messengers for this. Well, no, I don't think so. I think we are in the middle of a of an era, and it's easy when you're in the middle of an era to think you're at the end of an era. And really, this is you know we're in the thick of a cultural conversation where the we can only prognosticate the end, or or, or I don't know if there is an end or if we're seeking an end. I think the American experiment has been. To aspire to greater equality and greater inclusiveness in everything we say and do.
1: But at least there are some things that unite us. Like, I think no matter what your race, color, or creed, we can agree today that Sam Malone from Cheers should not get up on a stage in blackface, say the N word 12 times, and then eat a tray of watermelon.
2: He's certainly not forgiven just because Whoopi Goldberg says she wrote it all (laughs) on his behalf. And that concludes Ted Danson in blackface. Entry 1283.JB2317, certificate number 22400 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, it will be entirely devoted to canceling artists of every stripe when they do a single unpalatable thing, including just appearing... In their own natural clothes.
1: In the future, social media there will only be one tweeter post at a time, and then the replacement will cancel that one.
2: Right. Every tweet will be judged by all living creatures, given a thumbs up or thumbs down, like Caesar in the Colosseum. And thumbs down will result in the in the execution uh, execution of the tweet. This is perfect.
1: Like you can't deny if the majority of the human race is against the thing you said.
2: Who are you going to appeal to? Fifty one to forty nine. Sorry, buddy. You're, you're the Veruca Salt in this story.
1: I'm only in favor of this if it affects all tweets.
2: <laughs> in our time, Twitter and Instagram are archived at Omnibus Project, and our handles are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. Uh, Ken and I both have tweets in our, in our tweet history that we, uh, that we would take back if we were the type of people that took back tweets. Sure, like you, you know, it's a learning process. Yeah, but you, we put it you all say out awful there stuff
1: on the internet all the time. But we don't. I'm like Whoopi. I don't want to whitewash the past. No,
2: for all to see. I said so many bad things about Bernie Bros in 2015 that one day they'll all be cataloged somewhere. Once but,
1: he takes, once he takes the reins
2: of power. No, I think it'll be 20 years from now. Everyone when who used the word Bernie Bro is going to get rounded up. Some Bernie Bro will become president and and say all of those people. Search put a put a search on all of Twitter. Any usage of that term.
1: I didn't say Bernie bro. I said bernie bro. It's it's the, seaside, it's the seaside town in Italy where I took my vacation. Yeah. Welcome. Benvenuto uh, a <laughs> bernie bro.
2: <clears throat> I'm also on Instagram at, at John Roderick, where all of my uh, selfies are in whiteface. <laughs> all, all your bad Ted Danson looks yep. are uh, cataloged in order. I just put kabuki makeup on. Uh, my uh, or our email address. I'm not going to give you my email address. Uh, was the Omnibus Project at Gmail.com. Our fan group, the Omnibus Futurelings, are on Facebook, and we recommend you go there and enjoy all the fun people having fun, fun times. Also, there are serious people having serious times. Uh, sometimes serious people and fun people are having times together.
1: Then they cancel each other.
2: Uh, and you can send us things like Barbie doll toilet paper covers. And copies of your new record to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington 98155. Here's Scott
1: McCormick sending us copies of his children's books for our kids. The Mr. Pants books. Thank you, Scott. Delightful. And this is an album by apparently a singer-songwriter named Sarah Hart, who uh, thanks us because she listened to Omnibus on her way to the studio. Every day she recorded it because she didn't want news or negativity. I'm sorry. I hope she doesn't listen to the blackface episode. We
2: are neither thing, news nor negativity. I don't think there's any news or negativity in the blackface episode. It's, you know, it's fraught, It's more topical than usual. But it's fraught depending on how much fraughtness you bring in. We got overly
1: confident based on our Hooters episode and we're like, we're going to the next level. Yeah. Ted Danson in Blackface. Let's
2: go. You've been threatening to do this from the beginning. You knew that Ted Danson in Blackface was belonged in the omnibus.
1: It's one of, my, it's one of the funniest things I remember yeah. as a kid. I mean, you know, obviously there's a serious side to it, but what is going on? It's a great what is he thinking moment. Should we talk about the shirts? shirts. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the shirts. We have made Omnibus Futurelings t-shirts. They're available for a very limited time. If you are a sentient grass, you would not be able to wear a t-shirt, really. You really couldn't even order one.
1: Like, What part of your body could you move to (coughs) to order the shirt?
2: It's entirely possible that uh, sentient grass are so articulate with their tips that they could operate a... Uh, a manual typewriter left over from prehistory. But your opportunity to get this t-shirt, Sentient Grass, would have passed by your time. Uh, They're only available for a couple of weeks here in the year 2019.
1: Until the end of April 2019, we want you to know there was a two-week period when people were able to buy these wonderful omnibus designs.
2: Hopefully you, uh, in the future, do not have a fear of missing out because I'm afraid you genius slugs... Missed out
1: on this t-shirt. Thousands of years. But
2: hopefully our contemporary futurelings that we're not sure how they exist, but don't talk to me about time travel. uh, Here is the URL for you to get these Omnibus Futureling t-shirts. CottonBureau.com
1: slash people slash Omnibus. Apparently we're a people.
2: CottonBureau.com slash people slash Omnibus. And remember,
1: bureau is spelled,
2: John. B O O B. E-U-R-O-E-U. That's correct. Type
1: it in Period. just like that.
2: Blur Blura. Blura. Bu-
1: bu- bureau. All your, your practice uh, pronouncing Hari Kondavali's name has really helped you spell Bureau in odd ways. Yeah, bureau. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization will survive. We hope and pray that the catastrophe that awaits us with its gaping maw Maybe may be held off temporarily for a short season, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, could be our final word to you. We hope and pray that Providence will allow us to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.
0: For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.